0: Amen. I know a man who can. Uh, I was just thinking a while ago, boy, if someone is hung up on one style of music, and <laughs> and, and I know some folks are, for them it's all contemporary, or it's all the, the old hymns, or it's all southern gospel, well, they'd probably have a nervous breakdown around here, because we really mix it up. This morning, this morning it was uh, all southern gospel, and Because last week all praise hymns, I think, and uh, uh, all of the praise choruses that we're so familiar with, and uh, uh, then tonight uh, back to the old hymns. I I don't know about you, I like it that way. I uh, just uh, I think that's good. Well, open your Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter number ten. Revelation chapter number ten. While you're turning there, let me just make a few comments. It seems like that every week as we study from this great book of the Bible that uh, that I almost need to do a review to bring everybody up to date. I know how hard it is to you know to just go a week or like last week I missed and uh, and so it's been 2 weeks since we've studied and people tend to forget maybe what we've gone over. And we don't have time to do that, but I do want to mention, as I have several times, that one of the things that helped me, I think, more than anything else, in studying the book of Revelation many years ago, whenever I realized how the book was outlined... And I've mentioned that the first five chapters has to do with things before the tribulation. Then starting in chapter 6 all the way up through chapter number 19, it speaks about things that happened during the tribulation. And beginning in chapter number 20 on beyond that, it has to do with things after the tribulation period. Well, we are in that section pertaining to events during the tribulation period. And uh, I believe with all of my heart that there are four separate accounts of the tribulation given. There are four Gospels, uh, each one giving a different picture concerning the life and the ministry of Christ. And uh, beginning in chapter number 6 all the way through chapter 19, uh, I think we have four separate pictures given to us. And And, and I say that because... In each instance, as we come to a certain division, uh, one of those four divisions, it, it, it concludes with what happens at the end of the tribulation. And so the only way that it can make sense to me is that you have these separate accounts, each one giving a different picture. There's no way, no way possible that you can study Revelation Uh, And and what happens during the tribulation in a chronological order? It can't work out, or you've got the Lord coming back on four separate occasions, and that doesn't work. We know that He's coming at the rapture. God's people are going to be taken out. The tribulation is going to begin seven years later. He comes back this time, not for His saints, but with His saints, to set up His kingdom upon the earth. Well, we've already talked about the first the first picture of the tribulation, and we are into the second picture that started in chapter number 8, and we are in chapter number 10 tonight. So uh, this chapter is actually an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And I'm not going back through that, but uh, You know, John saw these seven trumpets or heard these seven trumpets, and this is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh is about to sound. And and by the way, Lord willing, we'll be there next week in chapter 11, which closes out the second picture of the tribulation. So instead of continuing with the narrative as it is, the writer now gives us the other information that is pertinent to the prophetic picture here, the overall picture. And that's why I said the first picture was in chapter 6 alone. It's like a snapshot, a preview, a brief outline of what happens in the tribulation, the four horsemen, and it ends with the coming of the Lord and the people hiding themselves from the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that chapter ended, that picture ended. Well, here we see that we're being given certain information that is crucial to understanding what's going on between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So, in verse number one, we see the appearance of a mighty angel. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Some have suggested that this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of Jehovah. You be the judge of that. So let's look and notice here the appearance of this mighty angel. And there are four things about his appearance here. Four things that we're told in verse number one. His clothing, it says he's clothed with a... Cloud. Now, clouds in the Bible are mentioned repeatedly in connection with divine manifestations. You remember that in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. God manifested His presence in a cloud. The Bible speaks of the clouds as being His chariots, the chariots of God. The Bible speaks about the clouds being the dust of His feet. I wish I had time to talk more about that. You know, whenever we think about the clouds and we think about that being the dust of His feet, why? you know, you stir up dust whenever you're active, when you're moving, when you're doing something. Let me tell you, our God's always doing something. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's active. He's involved in every aspect of our life. So clouds are likened unto His chariots, the dust at His feet. Remember, He appeared in the cloud there on Mount Sinai to Moses. It was in a cloud that Moses was able to recognize His presence. Then you remember that He guided Israel with a cloud throughout their wilderness wandering. Can you imagine what that must have been like? A pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and they moved when the cloud moved. So as God was directing them through the wilderness, the cloud would move, they would move, the cloud would stop, they would stop, they would pitch camp. They're being guided every step of the way by the Lord. And that's the way it ought to be in our life. Each step ought to be taken with His guidance. But not only that, we see that Jesus left in a cloud. You'll remember the story there in Acts chapter number 1, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and suddenly He was taken up out of their sight. What he went up in a cloud, right? And the Bible tells us he's going to return in a cloud when he comes back. So here we see him clothed with a cloud. Then notice his crown. It says a rainbow was upon his head. Now the rainbow is the symbol of God's covenant mercy. Remember, God told told Noah that it would uh, that he would uh, not destroy the world again. With a flood. And so this was his promise. This was his assurance. And so this, no doubt, is a reminder to John that God never forgets his promises. He never forgets his promises. Isn't that good? How many people have you had to make a promise to you? They give you their full assurance, I'll do this or I'll do that, and then they never carry through. Let me tell you, when God says something, the Bible says in Titus 1-2 that he cannot lie. God can't lie when He gives a promise, and there are many precious promises, and He keeps every promise that He ever makes. And so, this is a reminder of that. A rainbow was up on his head. You know, I'm just I'm just childish enough to believe that when we look at the clouds, or we see the rainbow. We ought to think about these things. That our God is involved in all of creation. Then notice not only His crown and clothing, but notice His countenance. It said His face was as it were the sun. Now turn back to chapter number 1 and verse number 16. If you're trying to figure out who this angel is, notice what it says here concerning the Lord Himself. It says, And He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. And so here we see his countenance as it's shining. Remember, whenever Moses saw God, he had had to wear a veil over his face. That's why the Bible says no man at any time has seen God and lived. You could not look. You could not look upon the glory of God in all of its fullness and live. You could not survive that at this present time. So his countenance is as it were the sun with brightness. But then notice his conquest... It says that his feet were as pillars of fire. Now, this is a picture of victory, because it's talking about fire, and fire is a symbol of judgment in the Bible. And notice his feet here, and later on in chapter number 19, it speaks about the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what it says concerning the Lord, that he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. One of these days, God is going to walk all over His enemies. The same one that walked on water, the same one that had under His feet the very things that frightened His disciples, the same one that was in control of the storm, one of these days is going to take charge and rule over this earth. We call that the millennial thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen after the tribulation period. Now, remember, God keeps His promises. Aren't you glad that you're a child of God? Aren't you glad that you can know with full assurance that regardless of how it looks, that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt, when it's all said and done, whenever it's all over, we win. We win. We've read the last chapter of the book. We win. We know what's going to happen. And He's going to have the nations of this world under His Feet. Now, look at verse number 2. We see not only the appearance of this mighty angel, but the actions of the mighty angel. And notice his possession. He had in his hand a little book open. Now, the contents of the book are not mentioned, but it's clear there was a message in the book for John. God has a message for John. Now notice his position. He has in his hand this little book. And, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. This is a picture of conquest, just what we've been talking about, that our Lord is going to take charge. He's going to trample underfoot all of His enemies. He's going to conquer this world. And that's something that we are reminded of repeatedly in the Word of God over and over again, that King Jesus someday will rule and reign from the throne of His father David in Jerusalem. He'll rule with a rod of iron. Righteousness will flow as a river. And I mean, everything will be under His control. Eventually, all of the forces of evil controlled by Him. In Zechariah chapter number 14, let me read just a few verses because it relates to this very thing. In verse 1, He says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Now, whenever the Bible tells you something's coming, you can mark it down, it is. God never misses any appointments. The day of the Lord cometh. And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, and I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as He fought in the day of battle. Now listen to this. And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And and, and notice verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all of the earth in that day. Shall there be one Lord, and His name one, Hey, that's what you've got to look forward to. That's what's coming down the road. Whenever the Lord sets up His throne upon this earth. So we see His appearance and His actions, but look at verse number 3 and 4, and I want you to listen now to the assertion of the mighty angel. Notice the cry of the angel. John says the angel cried with a loud voice, As when a lion roareth. Of course, you know the Bible teaches that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not just the meek and mild Lamb of God. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Those in Africa tell us that on a quiet day that you can hear the roar of a lion as much as three miles away. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing, in the day of the Lord, whenever He comes back, everybody's going to recognize it's Him. They're going to hear His voice, as it were. Remember the trumpets going to sound and so forth. He's going to roar as a lion. So the same one who is the meek and the lowly Jesus, the Lamb of God, who died for us, is coming back one of these days as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah to conquer all of his enemies. So we see the cry of the angel here. But notice the complimenting voices in regards to this in verse number 3. And when he had cried seven thunders, uttered their voices. Now, remember, the number seven speaks about completeness. In other words, the judgment is going to be complete. God's not going to just, you know, defeat His enemies for a brief period of time. This is going to be a complete victory over the many years and especially with those of us here in America, we've gone to war against various people and so forth, and we go in and we win some battles, and we pull out the troops, and, and, and what do you know? Well, later on, we're right back to square one, right back where we started. Well, I want to tell you, God's going to finish this fight. He's going to put an end to it in that day. So, whenever whenever He cried, it says, seven thunders uttered their voices." Now, notice the council. Remember, we talked about there being a, a a little book that was in his hand, and the book was open. But notice what it says now. Another voice speaking from heaven said, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. In other words, John, this is just for you. Write them not. Don't record this. You know, I don't want people 2,000 years later to know what I'm telling you here. It's a secret thing. Remember, the Bible says the secret things belong to God. There are some things best not revealed. And if we needed to know the contents of that book or the contents of this message, the things that, that the angel uttered, God would have told us that. I don't know why it is that so many people have a difficult time whenever it comes to just leaving the mysteries to God. Some way or another, we think we've got to figure everything out. The other day, uh, a few weeks ago, one of the morning mannas, I'd written a morning manna, and called the, it was called The Danger of Curiosity. The Danger of Curiosity. Now remember, the Bible talks about the secret things belonging to God. We get ourselves in all kinds of trouble uh, whenever we try to find an answer for everything. There's some things you can't understand, some things that you cannot explain. You need to learn to just trust God and leave it there. The secret things belong to Him. Lo and behold, the only criticism that I received, you know, I received an article back from a preacher. And what about this? What about that? And so anyway, I told Bev, I said, it's really amazing to me that I write this article, and a preacher that I've never heard from, never one compliment of any kind whatsoever, even though I get up every morning, sometimes spend as much as two hours, you know, getting a morning manner ready, getting it sent out and so forth. Never heard from this guy. And the one time that he has anything to say, it's something that's negative instead of something that's positive. You know, that's the way it is, though, with people, right? Well, anyway, I wrote back a brief explanation of exactly what I meant. And to his credit, to his credit, uh, I, I, got a, I got a very gracious response for which I'm thankful. Now, again, I, I, I want you to realize that there are some things about the future that you and I will never know. That should not shake your faith. That shouldn't bother you one bit whatsoever. And now, notice the announcement, and we're not through with this yet, but notice what he says as the announcement is made in verse number 5 and on down through verse 6 and 7. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. That must be some sight. I've often tried to picture that in my mind. I mean, one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and standing on the mountain and the mountain divides. And I've got to tell you, I, I I just I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, you think about a gigantic Jesus or something like that. I don't know. I'm not going to try to explain it because I don't understand it, but I don't have any trouble believing it. You know, that's what God said and I, I believe it. Now, notice... Notice that He informed John, verse 6 and 7, and it says that He swear by Him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things, the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no more. In other words, there will not be any delay any longer now. But it says, notice the days... But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but I know in talking to people, there have been a lot of folks that have wondered about God's long-suffering with sinners. Why God would be so patient? Why God would be so long-suffering? In other words, why doesn't He come back right now and put a stop to all of this nonsense that's going on in this world today? Well, He's telling us here that when Christ comes, all of these prophetic mysteries are going to be made clear Until uh, in, in that day. And until then, what are we supposed to do? to sit around and wring our hands or roll up in a fetal position in a corner somewhere and cry our eyes out because the world is so terrible? What are we supposed to do? I'll tell you what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to trust and obey. Just put your faith in God. You see, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself joining a bunch of these preppers and hiding underground somewhere trying to escape the, the, the problems in the world, and you will withdraw yourself and lose the opportunity that you have to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord never said this was going to be easy. He told us from the very beginning that we're going to have to take up our cross and follow Him. A cross is heavy. It's uncomfortable. You see, it's painful. And He says, take up your cross and follow Me. In other words, He wanted them to know in no uncertain terms, for you to follow Me is to encounter great difficulty. It's going to be hard, and there are going to be things happen to you that you don't understand. I mean, I can think of one thing after another after another, that has happened, and I have to wonder why. I'm talking about bad things that happened to good people. And I'm also talking about good things that happened to bad people that they didn't deserve. And I wonder, why in the world would God bless somebody like that? Well, I don't know. Again, that's a part of the mysteries of God. But thank God, one of these days, He's going to make all of that clear. Now, some... Someone has suggested that well, this could not refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, because you know they make the statement because of the fact that he's talking about here uh, the the oath being taken and so forth, and uh, that this couldn't be Christ uh, uh, speaking. But in Hebrews six and verse thirteen. It says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That is, he took an oath upon his own name. Now, you might not believe this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ, but you cannot reject the possibility of it on that grounds thinking about You know, saying that God wouldn't take an oath and so forth because obviously the Bible says he took an oath and he took the oath upon what? His own name. The highest possible thing imaginable. Whenever you think about God's promises, you need to remember that God took an oath on his own name and he doesn't fail. So we see, we see John being informed But notice, having been informed, he's then instructed. Verse eight, nine, and ten. And the voice, and the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth. Sweet as honey. In other words, he is instructing John to consume this little book. And, and notice that he tells him the contents are bitter and sweet. You see, that's God's way of telling us that prophecies often bring sadness or gladness, depending upon our relationship with God, you'll remember that in the case of Jeremiah, and also in the case of Ezekiel, that that as they ate the Word of God, digested it, and remember, that's what we're to do. We're not to just hear the Word of God; we are to digest it, to assimilate it into our varied lives. And sometimes it's bitter, and sometimes it's sweet. Someone commented on that very thing just this morning, and uh, someone remarked about a comment that was made about, you know, the message, and sometimes how the message, you know, gets to us. And look, if the message was never bitter, it really wouldn't do us much good. If every message was sweet in the sense that all it did was to stroke us and congratulate us and so on and so forth, it wouldn't do us any good. I remember back before my dad made a profession of faith, and I finally got dad to come to church a few times, and he would come, and then regardless of how hard I tried, I couldn't get him to come back anymore. And I, I'll never forget, you know, as I was encouraging him, Dad, what's wrong? You you come to church and then you won't come back. Well, what is it? Is there something there that bothers you? And he he made the statement and I'll never forget it. He said, "Well, son," he said, "I thought when you went to church, it's supposed to make you feel good." And, and he said, "Sometimes I leave there and I feel worse than I than, than I did when I came," you know. Well, look, if you're unsaved, that's probably going to happen. Or if you're out of the will of God, that's probably going to happen. There is both bitter and sweet to be found in the Word of God. And so He informs John, He instructs John, but then He inspires John. Every week, I give the fellows back in the sound booth a... a uh, the title of the message, morning or night or whatever it is. And if I'm not mistaken, the title attached to this message was A Precious Promise. This is where it came from right here as he is inspiring John. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John is given assurance from God that he will prophesy again. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, it must have seemed to him that his public ministry was over. History tells us that when they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil that he did not die, and so they shipped him out to the Isle of Patmos. Now, I can't vouch for all of that. That information is not in the Bible, except for the fact that he was an exile on Patmos. The Bible tells us that. So that's where he's at. And it appears to him, my ministry is over. I am in a place I'm never going to get out of here. My ministry is over, and God is letting him know that it's not so. I'm not through with you yet. You are still going to prophesy before many people. And history tells us that unlike unlike all of the other apostles, that John was finally set free, and he lived uh, to be a good old age and died a natural death. Now let me tell you, For a preacher to receive a promise like this, it would be worth every penny, every material possession he had. Because that's the desire of his heart, to proclaim the Word of God. Hezekiah was near unto death. He turned to the wall and he began to pray. And Isaiah tells us as he comes in and he told him, he said, you're you're not going to die. God gave Hezekiah another 15 years. None of us have any idea how long we've got on this earth. We don't know. We can't, we, can't, we can't control that. Well, there's so many things that, that I have on my heart that I'd like to say that I, I, I just don't think would be really beneficial to the message, but my heart is full in this regards. Even though I don't have the right to ask God for anything, I'll tell you what. And I think of the material possessions that we have. Bev and I was talking about that today, how God has blessed us. <laughs> I, 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 just, I can't even imagine what all God's done for us. I would give every penny in the bank, whatever it is, I'd, I'd give every penny. All of my fishing tackle, all of my guns, every, every material possession. You'd give me a pair of bib overalls and a pair of tennis shoes, and I don't have anything left but that. I'd give every bit of it if God would give me 15 more years to preach His Word. Gladly. In fact, I'd give it all if if He'd give me another 10 years. But you know, in my mind, there are times that I feel overwhelmed, you know, with the thought that the end is nearing. I, I, I just I don't know when and where. All I know is this. The safest place on earth for any Christian is to be in the center of God's will. And here is John out on that lonely Isle of Patmos, It seems like it's all over. It's all gone. There's no hope. (laughs) And it's as though God says to this angel, you're going to preach again, buddy. You're going to preach again. You're going to minister. You're going to prophesy, he tells him, before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. I don't care about preaching before kings. I don't care about going back to the way that it used to be when I was preaching 15, 16, 17 revival meetings a year and Bible conferences and mission conferences. I, I don't care about any of that. I, if God never wants me to do that again, that's fine. I, 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 I don't want to do that. All I, want to, all I want to be and all I want to do is to pastor this church as long as God gives me breath And as long as God gives me the ability to do it in the way that it needs to be done, because the last thing I want to do is to be a hindrance to this church by hanging on, drawing a paycheck, and not doing my job. And that's why I've said again and again, I thank God for this church. I thank God uh, for, for Brother Kenneth and Brother Ron and, and not just them, all of the rest of you that help in whatever way you can to make my job a whole lot easier than, than what I deserve it to be. And, and I think about what the book of Hebrews says about, you know, the church and its relationship to the pastor And it made this comment there that they, talking about the pastor doing what they do, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. There's nothing on this earth, nothing possible the world could give me that could equal the joy that I have in being the pastor of this church. I just, and I thank God for it. Now look, please forgive me for making this so personal tonight. But what I want you to understand is just as John was out there and it seemed that all hope was gone, you mark it down, you're going to come to a place in your life sooner or later that you're going to feel unwanted, unneeded, unable, whatever it is. You're going to feel like that you have no purpose in life. You're going to feel like that... Maybe you just can't do anything that's really of any eternal value. I'm telling you, you're going to come to that place. You might be 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or whenever it is. But what I'm telling you tonight is, you can't worry about that. Believe me, I've tried and it doesn't help. It doesn't help. The safest place you can be is in the center of God's will. You find God's will, and you do it, and all the devils of hell can't stop you or destroy you. I'm glad we serve a God who has given us exceeding great and precious promises, and He never lies. Let's all stand. Father, tonight how we thank You for Your Word and the encouragement that it brings to our heart, for the changes that it makes in our life, And we're so thankful tonight that we don't have to depend upon ourselves. We don't have to try to understand everything that happens in life. But help us, Lord, to learn day by day to trust you more and more. Just simply to find out what it is.